Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm John Francolantini, and I'm a queer journalist, playwright, and the producer behind this podcast. You might recognize the sound of my voice from guest hosting episode 89 with Uli Boitra-Cohen. I guess I did my job right because Eve and Julie have allowed me to come back for another episode. So thank you, Eve and Julie. Let's get to it. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider how does one steal like an artist? Sound intriguing? Flashback to 2011, a 27-year-old Austin Kleon gave a talk to college students outlining a simple list, 10 things he'd wish someone had told him about being creative when he was their age. After the talk, Austin posted the advice to his blog, which we'll link in the show notes, and, well, the list went absolutely viral. A year later, his book, Steal Like an Artist, was born. Now, cut to April 7th, 2021, when I still have no idea that Austin and his work actually exist, where amidst the pandemic, as it did for so many people, it just depleted my creativity. As a writer, I wasn't making progress. I kept spinning the same words and ideas. And just as a human being, I was tired and feeling directionless. There was too much happening in the world to focus. That is, until my best friend AJ gifted me Austin's New York Times bestselling trilogy of books on creativity. Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going. My world and my understanding of creativity permanently changed. This year, 2022, Steal Like an Artist turned 10 years old. It's been reprinted in a beautiful hardcover edition with a brand new, brilliant afterword written by Austin. And I couldn't resist the chance to talk with Austin in celebration of the anniversary, even just to say thank you. And listeners, he agreed to come on, which still blows my mind. So just a little bit about Austin before we begin. In addition to the trilogy, Austin is also the author of Newspaper Blackout, a collection of poems made by redacting the newspaper with a permanent marker. His books have been translated into dozens of languages and have sold over a million copies worldwide. He's been featured on NPR's Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He speaks for organizations such as Pixar, Google, South by Southwest, TEDx, and The Economist. So, Austin and I hit the ground running with our conversation. I needed to know, what does it take to write not one, but three best-selling books about unlocking and understanding creativity? Here's what Austin had to say. I grew up in the middle of a cornfield, and I spent my whole young life trying to answer really dumb questions, which is like, you know, what does an artist do every day? What do people do all day? That Richard Scarry book is one it's of my the favorite books. question. <laughs> yes. What is an artist? Where do they live? What do they eat for breakfast? But Still Like an Artist is everything that I learned in kind of the first decade of trying to become a creative person. Mm. Still Like an Artist became a bestseller. And all of a sudden, it's like, you are an author. You are a writer now because you've actually done it. So Show Your Work is me sort of answering a question that I got asked on book tour a lot, which is like, just how do I do this? How do I do what you've done? Like, how do I go from nothing to from being unknown to being known, basically? 
And Keep Going was something that I needed to write for myself. You know, the country kind of exploded into chaos. And then at the same time, I just hit this like big old block myself, which is just that like I hit my kind of like mark of, okay, I've been doing this for a while. Can I keep doing it? Mm-hmm. And so Keep Going was sort of a book I wrote as a manual for myself for going forward with each new book, I'm trying to ask myself, what is the question? The question will organize the work more than answering the question. How do you keep going? How do you get discovered? Having the right questions, I think is much more valuable to me than than anything else. And I'll be damned if I just can't come up with the right question right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that in mind about finding the right question, we're noting that still like an artist is now turning 10 years old, which in itself is an achievement. And congratulations on that. (laughs) Thank you. Looking at it now, what would Steel Like an Artist have looked like if you had written it for the first time today? Would the advice have changed? Do you think it would have expanded? Or do you think in a converse way, it would have gotten a little more specific what you wanted to say to yourself? You know, the more I think about it, I think books are crystallizations of thought at a certain moment in time. And so people get really upset when I tell them, I could not write that book now. And and they were like, what do you mean? You wrote this book. It means so much to me. And I was like, yeah, it means a lot to me too, but I literally couldn't do it now. I pick up Steel Like an Artist now, and I'm just like, who is this person? Where does all of their confidence come from? How can he be this confident about how this works? And so, in a sense, the strangest thing for Steel Like an Artist is that, you know, I just got done telling you that I wrote Keep Going to myself, you know, for the future. But really, Steel Like an Artist ended up speaking (laughs) to me in the future, too, because it sort of says, like, you can make it this simple. Hmm. (laughs) Because to me now, all I do when I look at the book is say, well, that's a little simplistic. But it's the fiery simplicity of the book that I think kind of is the catalyst for people to just go do their own stuff. The older I get, the more I feel like art and books are their stored energy. You put all this energy into them and then the reader activates the artifact and the energy comes back out again. So is there anything from the 10 years ago version that you find yourself maybe not so aligned with anymore? I I think this is going to sound terrible. Personally, I find myself against the whole stealing as a metaphor. (laughs) I mean, mean, you know, it's it's so funny because um, when I started using the word steal, it was literally because it was what so many of my and they were mostly guys, which I think is an important point. Mm. So many of the creative people I looked up to at the time in those early years, it was the kind of things that they were saying. It was Jim Jarmusch being like, steal from anywhere that resonates with you and it'll be authentic. You know, it was David Bowie saying he was a tasteful thief. It's like all these cool guys, you know, saying, yeah, man, you just steal it. And Now that I think back on it, I mean, you know, if you're talking about stealing, stealing means that you can own something. If you steal something, that means something can be owned. 
you know, to speak in Lewis Hyde terms, your gifts as an artist are unlocked by the gifts of other artists. That's a completely different language, right? A gift can't be stolen. You can't steal a gift. There's a great jazz guy that said that. I don't know if it was Charlie Parker or Bird or, you know, I, I forget who it was. But my, my primary frustration with the book is the thing that I cannot control, which is people see the steal part and they don't see the like an artist part. They forget the like an artist part. They forget all the nuance. It's just like, yeah, just rip off this idea and make it your own. It's like, no, that's not at all what the book is about. You'll notice like in the other books, I don't really talk about stealing as much. Show your work is more about sharing. And then in Keep Going, there's even a feminist Quaker... <laughs> technology student writer metallurgist named Ursula Franklin, whose work was really, really influential on me right before I wrote Keep Going. And I started thinking in terms of repair and connection and fixing. And so Keep Going has a lot of like, you know, thinking in terms of not stealing or breaking things, but taking things that are broken and putting them back together again. Right. You know, in a sense, the trilogy, I mean, I'm self-aggrandizing. These are cute little books that you put near the cash register. <laughs> but, you know, they do sort of track me as a person over time. And I think particularly a kind of dumb white guy's you know, evolution over time. You know, you, you sort of start out with this very simplistic model and then hopefully it deepens something that I would say to young writers or, or artists or people at any point in their career, make the work that you can make now, because if you don't, it's just not made. <laughs> you know, It just won't exist. And then it's lost quite and often. And then it's lost and you just won't get it back. Yeah. You've mentioned a number of times about your, your influences and I'd love to talk about the creative family tree. My first question about that to you is, who is your creative family tree? What books or writers or even musicians, because you are so tied to music, have inspired the Austin Cleon that's continued for the, the past 20 years? That's a wonderful question. Um, when I was very young, I loved Green Day. <laughs> Which everyone yes. like, you know, now it's like everyone wants to like deny their Green Day love. It's like, no, when I was 13 or 14, Green Day was the coolest band in the universe. We have like, to embrace it. Like, and what they were doing, in a sense, is not that much different than what I'm trying to do with my books, which is to take that punk energy, that sound, and try to be commercial. And, you know, they took a lot of grief for it. But... When I look back, um, Dookie, of course, was amazing. And the thing people forget about Dookie is that there were cartoons in it. There were these great drawings. I forget the artist's name. But the liner notes for Dookie, for me, were almost as influential as the music. And then when their follow-up record, Insomniac, came out, there was an artist named Winston Smith. He's a San Francisco collage artist. He did that artwork for Insomniac. I actually wrote to him as a school assignment <laughs> when, <laughs> when I was 14, 13, 14, and he wrote back to me. He wrote me this like 14-page hand-drawn letter back. Oh, my God. Just talking about his work. And you can see this on my website if you Google Winston Smith, Austin Cleon. 
And that letter changed my life because it was the first time someone I admired out in the world said, well, hey, kid, I was just some kid in a lame town, too. You know, keep it up. Maybe keep doing your art. You know, I was a D student from Oklahoma. You know, like you can do it, too. And that was the first time someone gave me permission. So someone people use the word permission a lot with my books. And I used to think that made it sound like I was handing out bathroom passes, you know, (laughs) like I'm not a teacher, like I'm, you know, permit, you don't need permission to make art, but you do. The permission is in the work. Certain people's work gives you permission to attempt your own work. And for me, that was always what punk rock was about. You know, that kind of DIY punky, you can do this too, draw an album cover, photocopy it on your dad's copier at work and then make your cassettes you know that kind of energy and spirit it was like a great permission slip and then the great part of that story of course is that when i was on book tour for still like an artist i met winston and we're friends now and and i was able to thank him you know for for that great letter all those years ago you know i i try to that that's what I think about with the books is like, this is just my public letter. This is like what Winston wrote to me. It's just in the, in this different form. It's incredible. In the, in the vein of this family tree and finding those people who help you complete yourself. It also very much resonated with me as a queer person, because over the last decade I've had to build and distinguish between my biological family and my logical family. And in in the logical family tree, it's entirely people that I love and I trust and I do take immense creative inspiration from. And as I was reading your books and as I'm listening to you talk right now, I'm realizing that my artistic tree and my, my logical family tree, their branches very much entwine. So I wonder, do you have any experiences in seeing your branches entwine between any of the trees that you grow? Oh, man, what a great question. I mean, like, I think this is... So I'm reading William James. Uh, this sounds so pretentious. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm reading the varieties of religious experience right now, and there's so much of the religious experience that really feels like the creative experience to me. Mm. And there's another book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, where he actually says that a lot of artists have actually replaced their religion with their, uh, you know, with their artistic practice. And that's certainly true of a lot of the artists I know is that they either replace it or they replace it at first. And then they have to come up with like a way to integrate their previous religious life in with the art. It's very, very complicated. Anyway, the point is (laughs) William James has this great, William James could toss off a phrase like nothing. One of the phrases he writes about that I love is inner heterogeny. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, I heard that, and I was like the the cartoon break squeal, you know, inner heterogeny. You know, he talks about how like people who are really suffering, it's because you have all these tensions inside. You know, these things like pulling at you. I think for me, one of the real tensions when I was starting out was I had no idea how to 
unify my experience living in a quasi-rural upbringing Mm. with this kind of cosmopolitan avant-garde art that I loved, you know, like how do I merge, how do I merge that with the boy who I was and where I came from? Right, right. A lot of that has been healed by my work and by honoring where I came from. I always tell people I didn't grow up around artists, but what I did grow up around are these fabulously creative people. My mom uh, was a home ec teacher, uh, and then she became a guidance counselor and a principal or whatever. But like my mom taught sewing and cooking. She was always crafting. She was always baking and making things. And she's a wonderful quilter. I don't actually quilt myself, but the quilting is very has become very influential in my collage work. And my dad, my dad would have been a great artist. My dad has a very active imagination. I remember when I was 14, he bought this piece of land after my parents split up and he built a barn. You know, he took this really crummy piece of land and and I remember he just started with like a wheelbarrow and a shovel and just transformed this junk piece of land in this beautiful 20-acre, you know, kind of mini ranch that he has now. And I can remember him at the table like in this little dumpy apartment he was renting at the time, like, you know, he'd be sketching this plans for this place. And so like when I was younger, I was surrounded by creativity all the time. I just didn't know it. You know, I didn't honor it for what it was. I think one of the reasons my books appeal to so many different kinds of people and different kinds of artists is that I really increasingly see less difference between me putting a book together and my mom sewing a quilt. In the creation uh, of everything you've done, I mean, you are a, a very prolific writer, both publicly and, and, and privately. A- apart from the, the books that you have, you have a, a daily blog and you have a Friday newsletter, a Tuesday newsletter. You have 20 years of, uh, I'm looking at the list, notebooks, journals, diaries, logbooks, morning pages, mind maps. Like it, it seems like there's always something to be said and always something to be created. So on the other side of that spectrum, is there anything that makes you speechless or are there ever times where you just don't have anything to say every day? I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are things that seem unapproachable to me. People have asked me when I'm going to do a parenting book, like the creative parent and my children, I have two boys. They're, they're nine and six and they mean more to me than anything. And I find writing about them, I am so superstitious about being wrong. I'm so scared of being wrong that I can't do it. I cannot I cannot write a guide. You know, a lot of people ask me about like, I'm scared or how do you deal with fear or being afraid and stuff. And Usually my answer is like, well, I'm borderline sociopathic uh, in my production, so I don't really – I mean, this is – what I've always wanted to do is is have a say and and be out here. I, I wonder if maybe my kids are, are the things that I have really leveled me in, in a way that I'm genuinely afraid 
about what might happen if I think that I know what I'm doing with them. And parents, you know, being a parent is something that has made me so, it's the thing I cannot figure out. It's like everything's always changing. So it's like you just can't ever get ahead of it. And in that way, it is connected to creative work because it's always like being a beginner. Right. You know, you're a perpetual amateur as as a parent. And I feel like, you know, if my agent or my editor were listening to this, they'd probably be like, this is it. This is the book. <laughs> just say this, you know, but it's like, I just can't, I can't get there yet. I'm I'm actually writing a talk about imagination and creativity and how they aren't the same thing. Oh, and so, okay. so let me work this on you for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. So imagination, first of all, it's not visualization. They're different things. When we think of imagination, a lot of times we think of making pictures in our heads. There are people who cannot make pictures in their heads. One of those people is my wife. She has a condition that 2 to 5% of the population is supposed to have. It's called aphantasia. And what it literally means is that you cannot make images in your head, that you cannot see things in your mind's eye. So like right now, if I tell you, close your eyes, picture a door. Can you see the door? Yes. Can you see what color it is? I'm going to sign it red and yeah. Yes. yes. And you can see that it's red. Yeah. My wife can't do that. I have lived with this woman for 15 years, but more than that. And we just discovered last year, she has this thing. She can't make pictures in her head. Oh Ed Catmull's another one. He ran Pixar. There are all these creative people you find out that can't actually make pictures in their head. And it requires you to rethink what imagination is. It's about ideas, words, concepts that aren't apparent to your senses, right? It's about thinking up things that aren't there in front of you, basically. So that is different, though, than creativity. Okay. Creativity is taking what's in front of you and turning it into something new. You know, that's making a novel out of 26 letters. That's <laughs> sewing a quilt at the, from the material. That's taking a big brick of marble and carving it into the David, you know. So this tension between those things is very interesting to me. We talk all the time about imagination and how, um, how wonderful imagination is. But we don't talk about the dark side of imagination, People with overactive imaginations get so divorced from reality that it causes them a lot of problems. Mm. There's a lot of fear that comes out of an imagination because you can think of these really bad things that happen. It also can destroy you when you're trying to make something because if you sit down and you try to draw something from your head, it never looks like the picture in your mind unless you're – you know, superhumanly talented. And so that can jam you up. Absolutely. It's the same with art as it is with children. You might have a picture in your head of how you want your day to go. Your children have other plans for you. And if you can only, if, if you're too attached to what was in your head, your day will be completely ruined. But if you can be more like an improv comedian and, and roll with it, it's the same thing with art. Art emerges from where reality and the imagination rub up against each other. Right, right, right. And it's really the friction 
of your ideas versus the materials, that is where the art is made. And it's out of the struggle in your limitations where the real good stuff happens. After my conversation with Austin, the word that kept coming to mind was permission. Finding the permission to make art, even though it can be very hard. Not good art, not bad art, just art. Judgment-free, no need for criticism art. And allowing yourself the freedom of knowing that your art will continue to evolve, as will you. I really liked Austin's point, too, that the art stands, even if ultimately you feel like a different person made it. So... That's what Austin helped me to unlock over the last year. And that's why I keep two copies of See Like an Artist close by my desk. They're reminders that I'm allowed to create for the sake of creating, because it's what I do and it's what makes me happy. And I think that's something we can all hold on to in these times. So on that note, that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach out to us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram every day. You can find Austin on Instagram and Twitter at at Austin Cleon. You can also subscribe to his brilliant newsletters at austincleon.substack.com. Many thanks to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohelm.com, Julie at juliesternberg.com, and me at heydronfranco.com. And check out the podcast website while you're at it, bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and